fund um, as <laughs> goodness. It's just so awkward. You're listening to the Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to the Worship Review, the podcast that critically and charitably examines the texts of songs sung in the church. Our goal in doing this is not to tear down, but actually to build up one another and build up the church. My name is Tyler. I am a linguist and an analyst, and I'm joined by my good friend, Colin. Hello, I'm Colin. I'm a history professor, uh, all-around good guy, former worship leader. That's about it. And we are going through a series on our greatest songs list. We are making worship music great again on this podcast. And (laughs) this week, we are taking a look at a song by a man we've had on the podcast. So in episode 101, we had the pleasure of speaking to Nathan Partain, who is a worship leader and musician, songwriter and all around very, very talented and creative man. And today we're taking a look at one of his songs called A Son of God. Colin, you brought this song. What can you tell us about this song? Well, I'll just start with my own kind of experience of the song. I was involved in a church, a Presbyterian church in 2015, from 2015. And the kind of main guy that was in charge of the music at this church was really into Nathan Partain. And so every week, pretty much, we sung at least one Nathan Partain song. And it's not that I didn't like those songs. It's just that I I was always like, dude, I don't, like, I don't know these songs. Does anybody else know these songs? And so I kind of I was a little skeptical. And then when this song, when we played this song, I was like, wow, I mean, that that's a really good song. Like, I, I just could not... I'm a pretty, you, you know me, Tyler. I be somewhat critical occasionally on you know things and share those critical opinions. But um, I, I had nothing, I had nothing to complain about with this song. I really liked it. It just reminded me, well, so the song is about what it means to be a son of God in, in all of the ways that it could mean that, like being an heir, being a member of God's family and knowing God in the way that a son and a father would know each other in a relationship in which the father is actually God himself and not some, you know, uh, f- fallible father. And it just goes through what that means to be a child of God, to be a son of God, and to be free and to have the love of God and to have God delight in his His sons. It's, it's just a nice song about that. And uh, you know, this, for my own faith, I think, I don't know when it was, like, there wasn't a moment when I just kind of realized what it meant that I was a son of God, but 
it's something that's been important to me my whole Christian life. The knowledge that God isn't just an, an abstraction or something, but he truly is a father and is the perfect father. And that just has always stuck with me throughout throughout my life. And this song, I think, just really articulates not just the kind of feelings that that brings up, but the truths of what it means to be a son of God. So each verse is like a, like a little vignette about some aspect about being a son of God. Yeah, and there's a strong emphasis on resting in Christ in this song and resting in this new status that's been achieved and no longer striving uh, to prove one's own value or worth, which I really like. And I also like, it's, it's a short tidbit, I guess you could say in the song, but God is identified not just as God, uh, but as the King as well. So we get this idea that we've been adopted, not just into a personal relationship with, with God, but um, into a Royal family, truly. And it's, it's a powerful fact. When I heard a son of God for the first time, it suddenly made me realize that an old, an older song that I had found a little bit compelling was just actually not really all that useful and descriptive and meaningful. And that song was by Michael Gunger. Some would call him Gunger. It's called Friend of God. Here's the entirety of the lyrics of that song. They're not bad lyrics. It's just when you compare them to what we're about to talk about, you'll see the difference. So Gunger's song, Friend of God, is, Who am I that you are mindful of me, that you hear me when I call? Is it true that you are thinking of me, how you love me? It's amazing. And then he says, I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And it's true that God calls us friend, but this song is just kind of like, you know, it's just, it's pretty good that God's our friend. That that's, you know, it's good, and that's kind of it. It just kind of, that that's that's the gist of it. Whereas when we go through this song, as we're about to go through it, uh, Nathan Partain's "Son of God," it's just bursting, bursting with biblical, objective ideas about what it means to be a son of God. It's like it just makes that other song just look like. Yeah, I don't know, like, like, well, just, just sort of vague, you know, musings that are, that are sort of not well thought out. Maybe, maybe like the beginnings of a rough draft for a song that might be good at some point, but really isn't. And I'm not trying to be insulting or mean. I'm just, I don't know. This Partain song is, is really, really good. So I'm not familiar with that. You said Gunger, right? Not Gungan. Yeah. So Gunger not... and and he he apostatized. Oh really? About like within the last five years or so, he apostatized. One of the one of these many people that so called deconstructed that like somehow had never encountered or, or that thinks that the church has never dealt with questions like why do bad things happen to good people? Could God make a burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it? Oh, okay, I guess I'm not a Christian anymore. Yeah. I mean, if someone shows up with a wrecking ball and you're like, are you here to demolish? And like, no, we're deconstructing. It's like, no, <laughs> I know what that wrecking ball is for. Um, yeah. 
Colin, I w- before we jump into the lyrics there, I wanted to share with you some insights brought to you by the hive mind. And uh, the hive oh, mind is what I'm calling Google Bard, which is essentially Google's response to ChatGPT. Uh, it's a little bit terrifying, but also impressive what AI is able to say, um, but also profoundly creepy as well. So I asked it, you know, just preparing for the podcast, what AI would say some characteristics of Christian worship music are. And it says, this is Google Bard. This is not a human. Christian worship music is a genre of music that is used to express praise, adoration, and worship to God. It is typically characterized by its focus on the Bible, its use of simple melodies and lyrics, and its emphasis on community. Here are some of the characteristics of Christian worship music. It is biblically based. Christian worship music is rooted in the Bible. The lyrics of worship songs often come directly from scripture, and the music itself is often inspired by biblical themes. This helps to ensure that worship songs are faithful to God's word and that they point people to Jesus Christ. it is simple and accessible. It is communal. In addition to these characteristics, Christian worship music can be characterized by its emotional impact. And then I won't read it all, but this is the part that I found kind of unnerving. Um, Christian worship music is a vital part of the Christian faith. It is a way for believers to express their love for God, to connect with other believers, and to grow in their faith. When we worship God through music, we are participating in a centuries-old tradition that has been used by Christians all over the world to draw near to God and experience his love and grace. I found this... The robot somehow found <laughs> Jesus. He's using the first-person plural converted. pronoun. <laughs> yes. I, it, it really kind of creeped me out because you're reading it and you're like, oh, this is really interesting information. And then when it starts to make it very personal, it's like it fails the Turing test all of a sudden. And you're like, wait, there's no we here. You're a robot. You're telling me about Christian worship music. Maybe I'm a human superiorist or something like that. And I just can't accept. Specious. Yeah. I need to go watch Blade Runner again. We thought that when AI became sentient, it would be like Terminator or, you know, uh, 2001, a space odyssey. But Actually, the robot became sentient and decided it was a Christian. Yes. Incredible. That I don't think anyone expected that. No. Well, just probing a little bit deeper, I thought, well, what what could I ask it that would um potentially infringe upon this podcast? Like what what, what could I ask in a robot, uh, an AI um chatbot that would start to point it really closely into the direction of our of our show. So I asked it, um, what are your what are some criticisms people have levied at um Hillsong concerning their lyrics? And this Colin I thought was interesting. Hillsong is a Christian megachurch that has been criticized for its lyrics on a number of occasions. Some of the most common criticisms include that the lyrics are too focused on personal experience and emotion and not enough on biblical truth, that the lyrics are too repetitive and formulaic that the lyrics are too vague and ambiguous and can be interpreted in different ways, that the lyrics are too focused on self-help and personal improvement and not enough on God's sovereignty and grace, that the lyrics are too commercialized and marketed and not enough about genuine worship. So we, Colin, are competing against AI. <laughs> and yeah. so far, I'm not sure we're winning. No, that's clearly – I mean, look, look Tyler – We've gone like 10 minutes already on this podcast. We haven't even got to the song. And Google's AI has already leveled a much more precise and poignant criticism in, you know, less than a minute. 
Well, speaking of jumping right in, uh, let's do that so that I don't get humiliated any further. I lie down and rest Cause I work no longer I breathe in refreshed No more soiled in disgrace I look up at him To whom I am kneeling And I see delight there in my father's face. I lie down and rest, cause I work no longer. I breathe in, refreshed, no more soiled in disgrace. I look up at him to whom I am kneeling, and I see the light there in my father's face. Well, we have a biblical idea which may seem incredible that it is actually something that we can. Th- acknowledge is real, but God, God himself finds delight. And so part in us. So we have this in Psalm 18, for example. Uh, so the Psalm is speaking about his troubles. They, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Then verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And Nathan Partain just uh, use like makes a little word picture here where we have somebody resting from work. And that's, by the way, is the start of the song. So unlike many songs, again, this is, song throws us a curveball. Many songs have a problem at the beginning. If it's a good song, it's usually something like sin or rebellion. If it's a so-so song at best, it's like I'm lonely or I'm sad or... I'm just feeling bad, but there's no problem here. It's actually the song begins with I lie down like and I rest and there's no more work to be done. I breathe in refreshed. I'm not soiled in disgrace. And then why is the person doing this? Well, the person looks up and they're worshiping already because they're kneeling. So it's a sign of reverence and uh, admiration and submission to the father. And it's and the father is delightful. So the rest is coming from a, a God who delights in his people. It's a nice opening set of lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also went to the Psalms in, in thinking about this. Um, just all of the Psalms that talk about lying down and resting. So Psalm 3, 5, for example, I lay oh, down yeah. and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Or Psalm 23, right? Um, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Uh, there are, this is a biblical idea of resting in the Lord and in his, uh, work accomplished for us. You know, I've sung this song, Colin, many times, and I've actually never thought extremely critically about the lyrics before. So I just want to take some time. In, in looking at this, not to say that I didn't sing it, in, you know, with my intellect engaged or something, but I want to I want to make sure that just because I've sung this and I liked this, that I give it the same rigorous treatment that I give any other song. So uh, this song talks about being soiled in disgrace. So we can think of, you know, it's. I think it's clear to me that this is talking about, um, you know, our filthy garments of sin. Um, being removed from us and we're cleansed and, and given uh, clean white robes of righteousness in Christ. We're refreshed 
Yeah, I, I would actually wonder if it's uh, soiled with rags, uh, you know, soiled with the rags of right, like our own, own attempts at righteousness. Mm-hmm. Oh, like in Isaiah. Yeah, exactly. Because the whole stanza is about resting and not working. And, you know, one of our big problems is that we constantly think that we need to prove our own righteousness. And I think that's a big theme in this song is you do not need to prove your own righteousness if you're a son of God, because you're resting in his righteousness. Yeah, very good point. The singer is kneeling, so in prayer or worship or adoration before uh, the Father, looking up and seeing the light. So I too like this first verse. It's another juxtaposition that we see numerous places in this song, that God is king, and so the kneeling part is obviously acknowledging that, but he is also Father. So again, the, there's delight. When you look up at a, when you kneel before a king, you would not expect to see delight in his face. You would expect to see some kind of like stern authority figure, right? But Partain is trying to show here, I think, that God has the authority and the power to accomplish righteousness. And he has also at the same time just the love and delight and joy that makes him impart that righteousness not because he's like obligated to or just out of duty or something like that but because he just he he, we're his children i am last and low because i fight no longer to be right last and low because I fight no longer to be right or good or to prove my own worth. I'm not driven or pushed or weighed down with duty. I'm filled with release that Christ did all for me. So this is a line where, again, there is not a problem per se, but the lines allude to a problem that has existed. And so in that sense, it's kind of bringing in the problem so that we can better understand the resolution. So the person was fighting. The person was needing to prove his own worth. The person was weighed down with duty, but because Christ did everything, Christ did all for the person, this person has a kind of release. And I just like, just from a songwriting perspective, I like that I am filled with release right before the chorus because you're the fir- the first three lines that precede that while they're not while they're addressing a problem in the past they are nevertheless creating some tension in the song because we we are talking about difficult things uh you know again seeking one's own righteousness striving attempting to prove one's worth you know being weighed down like these are all things that that even if they're in the past might be tough to think about. And in the last line, we get the release. And it's not just, I'm filled with release. Okay, here we go. It's, I'm filled with release because of this objectively true thing. The objectively true thing is, Christ did all for me, which is, uh, you know, five words that summarize the idea that we inherit Christ's righteousness because we are his sons. And then the song is about to proclaim that. 
Yeah, this verse really brought to my mind two different passages in the Gospel of Matthew. So the first from the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when I when I think of someone being as also the first shall be last and the last shall be first, I am last and low. That is, I am poor in spirit because I fight no longer. And then also in Matthew 11, verse 30, when Christ says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that uh, we're not driven or pushed like oxen that are yoked with some heavy wagon or something like that. Uh, but because, as you said, Colin, uh, and as this verse says, Christ did all for me, I can walk lighthearted. I can walk uh, freed from heavy obligations to uh, complete tasks in order to earn righteousness or to um, seek that justification in, in myself or in my in what I do or in what I do not do. So I think it's a very, very biblical verse that we have here. I, you know, it's, this is probably a very common objection. How do we separate this from antinomianism, from the idea that the law no longer applies and I can do whatever I want because Christ did all for me? Yeah, I think that that makes people nervous sometimes. And I've, I've noticed that for sure. And in fact, I would have been in that boat too. Again, I remember the person that showed me a lot of these Nathan Partain songs, he was, he really had a mature understanding, I think, of his position as a son of God. And sometimes it kind of bothered me because I'd be like, well, yeah, but we still, you know, we still need sanctification, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm not saying that we don't, like, but just, let's just think about you know, what it means to have all of our work already accomplished for us. And there's a fine difference, of course, between the work of Christ that justifies and then the work of Christ that sanctifies. And it's not like, from, from okay, from I'll just give my own personal commentary rather than try to attempt to be a theologian, which I'm not. Uh, the way that I think of it is, there, there is no, it's not like there's a balancing act it's not like there's some midway point between where like you have too much grace or you can too you can just celebrate too much the work of Christ. Like when Christ did everything for us, he he did everything. Like anything that we can think of that we needed salvation from, any sin, you know, we're saved from that. We have the righteousness of Christ covers that. So that can be true at the same time as it is true that God is also sanctifying us, that he is making our delight in his law, that he is helping us and equipping us by his Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ, that he's working out our salvation and that we need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. So to me, these are not like mutually exclusive ideas. And I think, I think, Sometimes we we should rightly be concerned about antinomianism because it is a view in which the sanctification of God really has very little role to play in in the Christian life. But also, I think there's a there's a type of Christian, and again, I was one of them, that gets a bit nervous about just the idea that God could love us that much because we really can't understand that. It's really hard. We don't love that way. So it's hard for us not to think of there's needs to be some, at least some minute level of earning it 
some way. So it makes us really uncomfortable, but it's okay. Like knowing that God loves us that much is to take away all of our sin and totally justify us without any work. Like we, we, we can accept that on faith and we don't need to accept that in a way which means that we no longer wish to or are going to work out our salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you, you make a very important and uh, necessary distinction here between justification and sanctification because the Bible is full of passages which exhort us to good behavior, to um, following God's law, to and also by in the negative to not walk in the way of the wicked, for example, like in Psalm one, but we can't confuse that with what justifies us. Um, and yeah. so exactly. this song is clearly about being justified by faith in Christ as a free gift of God's grace and not yeah. about, because, and just to finish that thought and not about what we need to do now that we've been justified, if that makes sense. Because if you could see something like, I fight no longer to be good and think, well, you should, if you're know, if you a mature Christian or faithful Christian, you really should be kind of striving against your sin, striving to follow Christ, fighting to be good, not to bring glory or honor upon yourself, but just to glorify God. Um, yeah. So, but but it seems like what's going on in this song is, is that it's it's not talking about sanctification um, overtly. I think there is actually a lot that, that these lyrics do stir up good things in the heart of the believer, which do nourish the soul uh, in a healthy way. But this song is about finding your justification, your worth, your value, your goodness, your rightness, your worth in Christ and what what He has done for you. Yeah, and I challenge, you know, uh, if there's a, you know, if there's a listener that's kind of like, yeah, okay, this is all great, but, and I would just ask the listener to think like, okay, but why do you need the but? Like, why can't you just enjoy thinking about what justification is? Like, it's okay to think uninterrupted about justification for four minutes and 19 seconds or however long this song is. Like, that's okay. You could, yes, we, nobody, like, Partain isn't saying we shouldn't think about sanctification. And in fact, I think this set of lines that we're talking about now is pretty clear in showing that he is talking about justification. So like to be right or good or to prove my own worth. So this is talking about self-righteousness, right? This is not talking about, this is not saying that it's not, that we don't need to be good or to be right in a sense of, um, being gra- out of gratitude to God in you know or or in terms of sanctification but if we are trying to prove our own worth by our goodness or our rightness that's not a fight we should be fighting cuz that's a losing fight we can't do that right or like the next line i'm not driven or pushed or weighed down with duty now again do we have duty to God in it yes we do we do have a duty to God but we do not have a duty to save ourselves. We do not have a duty to save ourselves. In fact, that's a major difference between Christianity and the pagan religions that contextualized it at the time that Christ was alive and Paul was alive, and it's also true now. Christianity frees the believer 
from any duty that would save them. I almost think that this is, again, this is just something that, that came to me now, so I haven't fleshed this out entirely, but we we know from the Gospels that one of the thieves on the cross um, believed in Christ, and Christ told him, truly this day you'll be with me in heaven. And it's almost like this song is, it could be the song of that, of that, um, of that yeah. thief where it's like, I am, I am pinned to this tree. There's really nothing I can do here, but I know I'll be with him in heaven. I don't have to prove myself to the Romans who are crucifying me or to these people right. who are reviling me. I have nothing to prove to them because he, this guy's my brother. And he's going to take me with him. Yep. And it's okay that Christ saved that man. And it's okay that he, you know, didn't have, you know, he didn't pay Christ back in some way. Right. I think that that's a good example, Tyler. The thief on the cross, I think, is a pretty good uh, image of what justification looks like. Yeah. I mean, he's even as good as dead there. Right. It's just in a yeah. few hours he'll be dead. And that was us. That was all of us uh, before Christ saved us. Now we come to the chorus. I am a son of God, and love is my freedom. I can ask anything of my father, the king. I'm an heir, I'm adopted, and my brother is Jesus. I'm a son of God, and my soul is at peace. Now, Colin, we talked about this chorus in episode 101, so I would encourage our listeners to go back and hear that episode as well. Uh, that song specifically um, is is pulling hard from Galatians. Um, and it, Paul says, uh, you know, in Christ, you're, we're all sons. And he, and, he, and he goes to everything. He goes to, like, your socioeconomic class. Then he goes to our race. And then he goes to our gender. And then he says, you're all sons. And what he's saying there is um, you are all, like, the, the firstborn son, which, again, sounds, like, archaic. Why We should just throw that out because that's, like, patriarchal, whatever. You know, like, oh, that's a mess. But what he's saying is you are the favorite when God looks at you, he goes, he says, he, he says, Colin, oh, Colin, he's my favorite. That's what that's getting at. And then that, then man, woman, rich, poor, um, what, a, 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 someone from Russia or someone from the Ukraine, whatever it is, in Christ, they're my favorite. They're my favorite. So that's what son is meant to invoke in the scriptures there. I think that's the purpose of it. I wrote the song out of that. Now, I, I, I changed that in our congregation, pastorally speaking. Because what I realized was, and this is where I'm like editing my own song, it caused quite a bit, like when we sang it, I actually had different people sing it, and, and there was a, a, a woman who sang one of the verses um, to try to like draw out the fact like, this is all of us singing, I'm a son of God. But even that in this context of our culture, it, it just felt hurtful to a lot of people, like I was leaving them out. No matter how much I explained that or not, like it wasn't that just couldn't that couldn't land, and so I changed it to a child. It's not it's not my it's not my favorite. It's not my preference, 
Um, but I felt pastorally, and I felt responsible as a writer. Like I didn't feel like I put enough in that actual song to explain that. I just talked a lot about the gospel, but why that is a son, I didn't put the content there to help connect those dots for people. So I felt responsibly and, and pastorally like, I'm willing to, I'm willing to do that. Do you have anything that you'd like to say about this chorus here? Yeah, so in my opinion, this is a great chorus. And it was interesting to me when we talked to Nathan that he, you know, he there were people that just couldn't quite get it. And I understand that. And, and that caused him to kind of rethink whether he should keep it this way. So you've got a congregation singing, I'm a son of God. Well, there are men in that congregation and there are women. And Nathan's point isn't that everybody needs to be a man. He's speaking about the status of a son of God. He's speaking about this idea that we see in, you know, like Galatians 4, verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And there are other passages in Scripture that talk about what it means to be a son of God, but it is a status. It's, it, is a, it is, of course, gendered language, but it's it, 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 this status is open to all Christians. It's it's in the same way that like some words in like we don't have this as strongly in the English language, but Tyler, as you know, right, German, French, other languages, they have words that are feminine and masculine, and and in, and in many cases that gender is doesn't really matter. Like in terms of like, it's not really saying that. I don't know, a bird can only be female, right? Or a ship can only be female or something like that, right? It's not saying that. Um, it, so son in this context means heir. It means beloved. It means, um, you know, precious child. It, it, means that kind, it, it means that kind of thing. It doesn't mean man. That, that's really not its, its meaning, yeah, and as as you said, I think it's borrowing language from scripture, which uses you know the language of a, a male child, grammatically male child, but also semantically male child, um, and, and legally, which I think is relevant. I, I, as I recall from episode one hundred and one, you mentioned there are sort of political ramifications of that as well. But in in this context, I also think of you know in Romans. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It, I don't think that, that that Paul, even in writing that, would ever have thought, and therefore, you know, Phoebe is excluded because, you know, this or right. that. It's like, no, it, it, he's using that word, and he is using that word for a reason, and it's because of all those um, social and cultural and even political and legal um affiliations that are afforded it. Yeah. If you, if you look like, don't even use the biblical text, like look at the way. So like, you know, I'm getting into the weeds maybe a little bit, but so they're in the uh, war between the Greeks and the Persians, the second time around in, in the late four eighties BC. Is that Peloponnesian? What is that? No. Okay. This is, these are the Persian wars. So there's a, there's a general on the side of the Persians. That's a woman. Her name is Artemisia and she is described as manly. Now that is a translation of the Greek word for virtuous because it's the same in Latin. In Latin, man is a, is a weir, V I R. 
and virtue is, you know, that's where we get the term virtue. It's got V-I-R in it. It means manliness. That's not saying that she was a man, right? And it that doesn't say that. But for the for the Greeks and the Romans, like this idea, this courage was a masculine word. It was a masculine concept. It didn't mean that women could never be courageous, but if a woman was courageous in the language and the concepts of that culture, you used masculine language to describe it. Yeah, I, I, I know this is this is true also in, in the Germanic languages as well. There are just there are many adjectives which are kind of kind of weird now to hear, but that use the male sex as a yeah as a as an example of of certain virtues or features um and and it's obviously not because they think that men in general are um superior because it's reserved for specific men who sort of embody almost like a platonic kind of ideal of of this because if it were just generically held by everyone then there wouldn't be a need for this adjective but um oh just a weird etymological tidbit do you know where the um germanic sister word to latin weir survives in english werewolf is oh werewolf yeah half man half wolf yeah is werewolf um there's also in old english where guild which is money that you pay in compensation for the loss of life or of another um, yeah, yeah. It's man, man gold, man. Essentially, money. yeah. It's remuneration for a life. Um, I I do want to clarify one thing though. Also, that I also want to be aware that many ancient peoples, Germanic peoples, I think to a lesser extent than um, Greco-Romans, did actually um, see a kind of hierarchy in in the sexes that we don't have to such a great extent anymore. And I think rightfully so. And I don't think that's because I don't think that's because they saw men as this this sounds tautological, but I, I think there's actually a distinction. I don't think they saw men as inherently superior, but I think that they were actually inherently misogynistic and they saw women as being inferior or of, of like lesser uh sex. I, I I my understanding is even like Aristotle didn't really see women as being like complete or full humans. Yeah. Yeah, the Romans have this idea that women in, in many like legal in like legal constructions and social constructions and f- familial contexts are basically like children. They're like they're like adult children basically. Right. So, uh, this is I think a place where Christianity is is subversive actually in in that you know, Christians see men and women as both being inherently made in the image of God and um of equal worth and value before him. So, yeah. And it creates some complexities that I think we should embrace. Again, I think the, I think there are ways in which the like modern discourses on gender and rights and all of this would just try to make everything very simple and just be like, you know, I don't know, like, no, it must say men and women. We no, we can't say son. We have to use some kind of neutral term. And it's like, no, I don't, I just reject that. I think this is a complex idea that is embedded in a cultural context. 
that we actually really do need to appreciate. And in doing so, it brings something much richer than just the modern modern ideas about uh, gender, sexuality, you know, uh, equality, all of that kind of thing. That would that those those ideas would just kind of mush mush over it, right? It is okay for women to be thought of Christian women to be thought of as sons of God. It's it is subversive, that's true, but that's not the only good thing about it. It, it is true that that is what God is saying. That is what the Bible says. It doesn't just say children, which is great. Being a child of God is wonderful. But I don't think we should rob women of the right to the language of sonship. And again, I would just point to the book of Romans, verse 14 of chapter 8. I'll just read the English Standard Version. For all, emphasis mine, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right? It's not for men who are led by the... Like it's not for only those who are of the masculine sex, uh... And who also are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This it's yeah. this is a title that's offered to all Christians. It's the whole idea of the other things that we see in this in this part of the song being adopted. I mean, we have been brought in, men, women, slaves, free, Jew, Gentile, old people, young people. We've all been adopted, and in this way, we are all sons right? It's a new status that we all get to have. And I think it's wonderful that Partain made a song that boldly declares that, and anybody could sing this song, no matter what group they're in, because by virtue of being adopted, we have an inheritance now. With Christ, we have a new status as his brother and with God as our father. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't despise that by trying to do some gymnastics with language. This is what scripture says, and it says it for a good reason. Shall we go on? I stand up in faith Cause I fear no longer And I pray and wait For God to provide I lean all of my weight On Him who is able And I set aside I stand up in faith because I fear no longer, and I pray and wait for God to provide. I lean all of my weight on him who is able, and I set aside every effort of mine. I won't say too much about this because we've said so much about the rest of the song, but it's another nice vignette about where the person was and where they are because of the work of God. So God, again, takes center stage in this song. So this person can stand up, which, by the way, is an action. So again, this is not just a song about doing nothing. This is a song that recognizes that the faith that comes, uh, that God gives us, that we receive, um, can or does inspire us to action, to stand uh, out, you know, because we're not afraid. It inspires us to pray um, and to wait for God to provide. Um, and then to lean our weight, right? So again, these are all action words that the person does, but not to obtain righteousness uh, that saves. These are done in response to, or be, or in or in obedience to, in some cases, or 
you know, in a passive way, wait, you know, in, in, because God is the one who is going to provide, who is going to do, uh, who, you know, who is going to actually enable the person to, to receive fruit from their efforts, so on and so forth. So I just think this is a nice passage that shows this. I like the idea of God providing. Again, this is a biblical concept. We see it all the way back in Abraham and uh, and the ram that God provides Abraham instead of his you know his son. Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, and in the end, God provides the sacrifice. God's the one who does the work. <laughs> There's something here that I think is being done very, very cleverly. And what I wish Nathan were here because I'd like to ask him. Um, we didn't talk about the creation narrative when we were talking about sort of men and women in, with the chorus, but I think it's relevant here to note that the Hebrew method of marking days begins dusk to dusk. And mm. there's uh, and there was sundown and there was sun up the first day. And in the Shema, that is Hero Israel, this um, recitation. The Lord our God. Exactly. From Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So that's in verse 7. And what this song does very cleverly is it begins, again, um, it, it seems backward to us because I think this is maybe something where our, our culture is, is different from uh, that of the Hebrews. Um, I think you're exactly it right. It opens with rest in God, and then we stand up in faith in this verse. And I think that's I, – I, I wish – I'd like to ask Nathan, maybe I will the next time I see him, if I see him again soon. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 7, B, when you lie down and when you get up. Um, this song kind of follows that template for the Christian life of we begin not with our action. We begin with resting in God and then we stand up and we have no more fears. Yeah, it's good. I know now I'm safe. Cause nothing can harm me or break in and take what's stored up for me. I need not to cling to dead, helpless idols. They no longer can hold any comfort for me. I know now I'm safe because nothing can harm me or break in and take what's stored up for me. I need not to cling to dead, helpless idols. They no longer can hold any comfort for me. Part of this verse is pulling language from the Gospels. So, you know, Mark 6, for example, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Nathan, or I mean, the, uh, the worshiper is, has done that. The worshiper uh, has stored up treasure in heaven. Uh, and so the person doesn't need to cling to the idols of this 
world. And the, you know, Partain leaves this a little bit open as to what these idols might be. I actually don't think that's a problem because idols can be just about anything. So it's kind of nice that he doesn't define it, but it's clear that this conforms to the general idea that Jesus is is putting across in that passage that virtually all the things of this life that um, you know, you know can are are of not no value um, that we need to store up treasures in heaven, and I think Nathan uh, Partain really really gets that here, and even we ourselves are stored up in heaven. So, in the same way that. You know, we are a treasure in heaven because God delights in us and has saved us. So in the same way, nothing can harm us. Nothing can take us out of the out of the Father's hand, right? This is, a, again, a biblical concept. So there's, there's, there's some nice things going on here. Is it, this isn't a concept that you find in a lot of songs, idols being dead and helpless. Um, in fact, I, I've heard many sermons on idolatry, but I don't know if I've heard many songs about idolatry but there there are psalms that talk about it pretty clearly and so just to click just to touch on this um dead helpless idols thing um psalm 115 talks about idols uh and likens them to um inanimate because they are inanimate um really dead flesh so they have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see they have ears but cannot hear noses but cannot smell they have hands but cannot feel uh, etc. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So I think they are pretty cleverly. Um, those who make them, those who worship, those who bow down to idols, um, will be they. They will be unspeaking and unhearing because they will be dead. And I I really like that this song emphasizes the the. the there's a lot of talk about idols, but there's not. I don't think a lot of talk about just the the death that they are and that they bring into one's uh, life. So I like that too. <laughs> I mean, that's all I got. I feel like you have these really, really good thought out things. And then mine are always like off the wall, crazy stuff from left field. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, on that weird note, Colin, uh, do you have any concluding <laughs> thoughts for this song? I do. I like this song. I think the lyrics are great, but I also think like it is a fun song to sing. I encourage people to listen to the studio recording. It's just got a nice feel to it with a lot of background singers and just a chorus that just sails up over the top. Nathan Partain has this voice, which initially I did not actually care for very much. And it has grown on me over time. His voice just kind of um, has this disarming quality to it that just makes you kind of want to sing along. And that's this song really, it, it does just make you want to sing with it. And it's really fun to sing in a worship service. And I encourage people to, to give it a go if you are looking for songs to sing in your service. It will become a favorite of many in your congregation, I think. And who knows, maybe a lightning rod too for for arguments about the word son. As yeah, good good conversations about what that means. Absolutely, I don't think. See, this is the other thing. And I again, I want to be careful because Nathan isn't here to comment. I mean, we talked a little bit about this a few episodes back, but with him. But 
there Christian music is there is a there seems to be a drive to make Christian music as inoffensive as possible and uncomplicated as possible and there's that's good I think overall that's good you do want songs to put things across in kind of a clear simple straightforward almost singular way like you don't want them to be too busy so I think that's a good impulse but um, there are there are some concepts that do not lend themselves to that medium very easily so does that mean we can never sing about sonship no, we do need to sing about sonship. And so what we want is a song about sonship that does a good job about explaining what that means, that it's a status. In other words, it'd be great to have a song that talked about being a son of God and then said, I'm an heir, I'm adopted, and my brother is Jesus, right? Which, you know, obviously this song does. So to me, this is a great song for dealing with what is otherwise a, a, a rich and comp- and also at the same time complex subject and maybe opening up some of those discussions in 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 your church discussions which will lead to people having a better understanding of the gospel and what it means to be in Christ. Yeah, I'm just now reflecting on how simple so much of the syntax of the song is so compared to some of the hymns that we've done oh, in the yeah. past where a lot of one and two syllable words. Yeah, and even just simple subject verb, you know, object very 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 simple um, phrases like expressing what i am and expressing what i am not expressing what i do and expressing what i do not do um and it doesn't require you know a master's degree in historical linguistics to parse it and so i definitely think that is commendable in this song i like the emphasis on trusting in the lord resting in his work um, glorifying him and it's it's truly a kind of song that does leave you, if you sing and think and pray through these lyrics, it does leave you with um, what the last line says, peace in your soul. So I would also uh, commend this to those of you who are looking for a song about adoption or about justification. Colin, what do you give it? Five out of five, Becky's. And I'm going to go with Becky's because... Nathan Partain is the person who first explained who Becky was, and that has just been a useful way for me to understand music. I've used it on this podcast, and you have too, but I've just used this in my life now. Like, I just start thinking about, like, is this song designed to make a lonely and slightly unhappy 30-something housewife and mother just a little bit more depressed and just, you know, is that what this, is this just a marketing thing, or is this actually... Um, you know, for the church? Is this actually meant to edify and encourage the church? And so the irony is I give them, give this song five out of five Beckys, but this song is not a Becky song. This song is a song for the whole church. This is a much larger conversation that we need to have here because <laughs> on, some, on some level, I think it's a failure of American Christianity that there are enough depressed Oh yeah, but that's a market segment? That, that's... Yeah. A huge, huge market segment. I, for my job recently, I was reading about the Christian book market, and there was this interesting line that said the Christian uh, book market is roughly the same market as that for Christian radio. And in the back of my head, I also thought, "Oh, Becky!" Like when you, thought about you, you Becky. said Becky, I was like, "Oh yeah, I know Becky." Um, but yeah, th- 
that that would be a good episode to to have at some point. Um, how how did we get here? But I'll uh, I don't know why I'm hesitant to give it a five because I I like it so much. It's because you want to get me back for not fiving uh whatever it was we just did. No, I'm just passing it mentally through all the strains that we've passed other songs through. Like, does it talk about sin? You know, it, <laughs> you're actually being consistent in, indirectly. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, it doesn't talk about sin. It, it says I'm no longer soiled in disgrace. So it seems pretty clear what we were. Um, it, it does a rare thing. This song in really just rejecting works of, of man. And, completely relying on on christ it's talking about something you don't see a ton of songs about um although that gunger song to me sounded quite a bit like that hillsong song who am i that the most powerful king would welcome me oh yeah when you said who am i that you should be mindful of me i was like oh that sounds familiar but i i i can't find something to dock this on this is a five and um i'll give it five out of five I hope it's not weird if I if I name drop this guy Ragsdale's five out of five Ragsdale's because um, the second verse of this song is sung by a, a professional painter named Kyle Ragsdale and he also has a very distinctive. Oh really? Voice. Yeah. So oh, oh, I didn't even notice that. I hope I'm thinking of the right version. So there's the album version from 2015 on his album Jaywalker on Nathan's album Jaywalker. And then there's a live version that he posted a few years before that, where it's it's actually just his church. And so there's one sung by Nathan Partain, one sung by a guy named Kyle Ragsdale, and one sung, I believe, by a woman named Rebecca Osborne. And so you have like three different voices singing this with very different timbres. And I, I, I'm really partial to that one. I, I like the album too, um, but I, in the same way that you mentioned his voice kind of sounds disarming, to me, there's something disarming about listening to the live sets of the the worship music where there's voice cracks and, you know, there's missed notes and stuff like that. And, and over time, you, it kind of endears itself to you. Um, I, I know that's not for everybody, but that's that's kind of me. So in a world saturated with auto tune, it is nice, you know, to just hear a real a voice that, you know, is real, obviously, because it has flaws. Yeah, so five out of five Ragsdales. Okay. Good. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Worship Review, where we covered topics from AI to sonship to Aristotle to <laughs> Becky <laughs> to yeah. uh, the history of virtue. We hope that you'll consider sharing such a wide-ranging show with all the intelligentsia with whom you have relations. <laughs> uh, and also... We hope you'll consider sharing the show with the uh, clergymen, pastors, laymen, worship leaders, musicians, pianists, vocalists, saw players, whatever they do. Uh, if they are interested in talking about the lyrics and the theology of worship music, we want them to be able to hear this show. As Gordon Fee allegedly once said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. Well, that is the aim uh, and game of this podcast. We are talking about the songs, but what we're really talking about is what it says about what the church believes. And so we hope you'll share this with people who are interested in that. And if you feel so compelled that we might consider a donation to our uh, small 
fund um, as <laughs> goodness, it's just so awkward. Share our podcast, consider a donation, write to us at feedback at the worship review.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Good. You've been listening to the worship review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment or email us at feedback at the worship We accept donations at anchor FM slash the worship review and patreon.com slash the worship review. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week.